Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the history of the cards, episode 21, Zoophilus of Alexandria. Last week, we ended with Theodosius' death in 395 AD, with the empire divided among his two sons, Honorius in the west, under the influence of the barbarian general Stilicho, and Arcadius in the east, under the influence of a palace official named Rufinius. Pope Zephilus, on the other hand, had become the de facto problem solver in the East, at least church-wise. In 396 AD, he was approached by John, the Bishop of Jerusalem, to try and solve a dispute in Palestine. You see, John had a monasticism problem. One of the leading monks in his diocese, Jerome, was engaged in a bitter dispute with his bishop. Jerome was not just any monk, he was a historian, a theologian, and one of the relatively rare figures that were able to connect the Latin-Western theology with the Eastern Greek one. Anyway, the highly influential Jerome represented an independent authority separate from the bishop. Their dispute reached the natural conclusion by cementing around a theological issue and the involvement of other bishops. The theological issue was the legacy of Origen. Remember Origen from episode 6? Yeah, people were still arguing about whether he's a heretic or not. John was for Origen, and Jerome was against. It was actually a bit more complicated than that, but we will get there in a bit. The other bishop who was involved was Epiphanius, the bishop of Cyprus an anti-Origen firebrand who took the opportunity of visiting Jerusalem to denounce Origen and those who follow his teaching. John of Jerusalem obviously was not very happy and he rebuked him publicly. Epiphanius then went back to Cyprus and ordained Jerome's brother to a city in Palestine, despite it being outside of his domain and in John's sea, a clear violation of protocol directed toward John. Jerome naturally used his influence to support his brother and the Bishop of Cyprus, with all three using the ideology of being anti-Origen as the theological foundation that supported them against John. The theological issue was, and this is going to be brief and simple, about how the Bible and God is viewed. The technical terms are anthropomorphism for anti-Origen and Originism for pro-Origen. The theology can get complex, and both sides have claimed that their enemies have views that their enemies did not really believe. 
Similar to modern political discourse, where political opponents label each other with extreme ideas that neither of them have. In the same way, pro-origin and anti-origin accuse each other of extreme views that really neither side have held. Some did for sure, but the vast majority held fairly complex views. The extreme view of the anti-origin camp was, and I'm quoting from Otto Mandarius, Monks and Monastery of the Egyptian Desert Book, that the sacred scripture testifies that God has eyes, ears, hands, and feet, as men have. On the other hand, the extreme view of the originist camp was that nothing is to be taken literally. Everything has a symbolic meaning. For example, the creation story in Genesis did not really happen in a literal sense. Just keep in mind that the whole thing began as John of Jerusalem was trying to assert his position over the monks living in his territory, especially Jerome and his group. John was losing the popular opinion. Jerome had translated a highly inflammatory pamphlet made by Epiphanians that denounced him as a heretic, and to quote Jerome himself, all Palestine fought for copies of it. Thus, John of Jerusalem asked Pope Zephilus to get involved. Pope Zephilus then sent a priest named Isidore to Jerusalem to gather the facts and meet with the two parties. Isidore was a very interesting figure. He was very close to Pope Zephilus. In addition to being responsible for all the financial donations coming through to Alexandria, which was a very powerful role, even more impressively, he acted as the Pope representative outside of Egypt, and was generally successful as a diplomat. He was responsible for getting the church in Rome to accept the Bishop of Antioch, as we discussed last week, as well as several sensitive diplomatic missions outside of Egypt. In addition to being a priest, he held extensive connections with the leading monks in the desert of Sicidis, just south of Alexandria. Anyway, despite his past successes, on this occasion he totally failed, and instead of solving the issue, it became bigger. Isidore failed because, instead of representing Pope Zephilus as an impartial canon expert, neutral to the conflict, he let his own personal views about origin get in the way, and made the argument even more polarizing. Even before arriving, he wrote to John of Jerusalem stating, As smoke vanishes in the air, and as wax melts beside the fire, so shall they be scattered who are forever resisting the face of the church, and are now endeavoring through simple men to disturb the face. The letter fell into the hands of Jerome via one of his friends, and made the situation even more tense. Despite the letter, Jerome could not afford ignoring Isidore as Pope Zephilus' representative. So when Isidore arrived to Jerusalem, he managed to hold at least three meetings with Jean and Jerome. Naturally, the negotiations broke down, but again, instead of the acting as the Pope representative and presenting the facts as is, he portrayed Jerome as completely reconciled to Jean and admitting to his error. Now, Pope Zephilus' interest at this point was the relationship between influential monks and their bishop. Obviously, he felt that monks should not have public theological opinions 
different to that of their bishop. He knew of Origen's writing and had his own complex opinion about them, probably close to that of Jerome, but that was not the issue for him at this point. Thus, Isidore offered to him what he wanted to hear, Jerome submitting to his bishop. In his mission to Jerusalem, Isidore made the worst two errors any diplomat could do. One, holding his views above the interest of the party he's representing, and two, giving the boss whatever he wants to hear, rather than the truth. When Jerome found out, he was furious, and sent Pope Zephilus a letter, contesting Isidore's version of events. Pope Zephilus didn't respond publicly to the letter. He had a much bigger issue to handle, and he needed Isidore full cooperation and attention to succeed. I would speculate that he had his doubts, and believed Jerome's version, but he could not, and did not, want to lose Isidore at this point. Within a couple of years, Bobsuifilis would respond to Jerome, advising him to reconcile to John of Jerusalem, which Jerome dutifully did. But for now, he needed Isidore, because the bishop of Constantinople's seat became vacant. Theodosius appointee, who headed the council of the Constantinople, have died, and the seat was open for grabs. Pope Zephilus intended to put Isidore as a candidate to the office. Isidore was well qualified and known and respected by many bishops outside of Egypt, and his loyalty to Alexandria, despite the recent events, was rock solid. Pope Zephilus then traveled personally to Constantinople and immersed himself in lobbying for Isidore. Now, Constantinople at this point was full of vicious political intrigue, with a weak-willed emperor on the throne. Rufinus was immediately in charge after Theodosius died, and he almost went to war against the western half of the emperor when Stilicho claimed that he was the guardian of both Theodosius' son. Rufinus did not last long. Through the machination of a eunuch named Eutropius, with the help of Stilicho, Rufinius was assassinated just prior to his daughter marrying Arcadius. Eutropius now became the man behind the throne, and he arranged for a new marriage to Arcadius, a Frankish general daughter named Eudocia. Eventually, Eutropius would fall from grace, and Eudocia would fill the bower vacuum. Anyway, when Pope Zephilus traveled to Constantinople, Eutropius was in the height of his power, and he had his own candidate to deceive Constantinople. His candidate was a popular preacher from Antioch named John, known to history as Jean Chrysostom. Chrysostom is from Greek, meaning golden-moused, due to his powerful sermons. Anyway, the lobbying for deceit was fierce and Eutropius had to resort to blackmail and threats to get John appointed. Eventually, under pressure, Pope Zephilus relented, and he was one of the three bishops that ordained John to his seat. However, the relationship was tense to say the least. John obviously knew that he was not Pope Zephilus' preferred candidate, and Pope Zephilus knew that he cannot count on John to uphold the interest of Alexandria. 
And now that Isidore was no longer a candidate, tensions also started rising between him and Bob Zophilus, with the events in Jerusalem as the background, as well as other things that we will get to in a bit. So Bob Zophilus was having problems with an influential insider, Isidore, and a respectful but tense relationship with Constantinople. Both issues broke out in the open in 399 AD. The events that happened next are recorded by five ancient sources. One of them is Pope Zephilus himself. All of the five sources tell a somewhat different version of events. What follows is a reconstruction of the events based on the five versions according to Russell Norman's book, Zephilus of Alexandria. In 399 AD, Pope Zephilus wrote a letter against extreme anthropomorphic views that claimed God exists in literal human form. And we're not talking about the incarnate word here. We're talking about the Godhead as an entity. That letter was received badly with many monks who did not appreciate the complexity of the argument, and they immediately put Bob Zephilus in the originist camp. But Bob Zephilus had extremely complex theological views and essentially had problems with both camps. He was concerned about the literal reading of some of the prophetic books in the Bible, such as Revelation or Hezekiah. So in that sense, he was pro-origin. But perhaps he was even more concerned with the allegory method of origin. Opening the door for anyone to explain away biblical passages as he wished based on allegory was very problematic for him. It will essentially lead to, and I'm quoting him directly, a hydra of heresies. The problem was not allegory in of itself, but rather who's doing the explaining behind the allegory. So when the monks came protesting, he calmed them down and told them that he sees in them quote, the face of God. And then he took an anti-origin stand that they loved. But his anti-origin stand did not sit well with another group of highly influential monks, nicknamed the Tall Brothers. Their leader, Ammonius, was very influential. He was one of St. Athanasius' companions at exile in Rome, all the way from episode 12. The situation could have been contained easily, but Isidore got in the middle, and things quickly got out of hand. What exactly happened with Isidore is where the sources tell the story differently. Isidore was facing a trial for misconduct. Some sources tell how he and Bob Zephilus fell out when Isidore received a gift of 1,000 gold coins which a widow had donated to the church for distribution to the poor. The widow asked Isidore not to tell the Pope because she was afraid he would divert the money to building a church rather than give it to the needy, as she wished. Pope Zephilus then found out and decided that Isidore had to go. But as Isidore was an influential and a well-known figure, he can't just fire him and expect Isidore to go away. 
Isidore had to be discredited and exposed as a fraud. Thus, a trial was arranged where he was accused of moral misconduct. Isidore obviously denied the charge and claimed that witnesses were bribed by Bobsiophilus to come forward. Bobsiophilus, in his version, also claimed that Isidore bribed the witnesses to not to speak. Either way, Isidore did not like his odds in a trial and decided to flee from Alexandria to the desert and use his influence with the monks to try and discredit Pope Zephilus. Now, if there was only a group of monks who were already not happy with Pope Zephilus' theology, well, they would make perfect allies for Isidore. Enter the Toll Brothers, led by Ammonius. Isidore and the Toll Brothers were long-time supporters of Urgen, and Isidore was able to recruit them for his cause. Now, this was a big problem for Pope Zephilus. Just like Sean of Jerusalem earlier, Pope Zephilus had a group of influential monks undermining his authority. Ammonius twice led a large delegation of monks to Alexandria, officially to plead for Isidore, but really as a more or less public demonstration. Now, up until this point, the issue of origin was more or less in the background. No one was excommunicating anybody, and the dialogue was somewhat civil and away from accusation of heresy. Accusation of heresy was a potent weapon, so, and really, perhaps the only thing available to Pope Zephilus to stop the Toll Brothers and Isidore from undermining him. Thus, Pope Zephilus moved at the offensive. Knowing that the Toll Brothers and Isidore were well known as pro-origin, but the majority of the monks were anti-origin, he decided to hold a synod in Nitria, a monastic stronghold, to look at the issue of origin and his followers. Now, the Toll brothers have obviously read and studied origin, and so did Pope Zephilus, but the vast majority of monks and bishops attending the synod have never read his work. So, Pope Zephilus prepared a folder of the most inflammatory and speculative things Origen have written and presented it to the council to condemn Origen and thereby the Toll Brothers and Isidore. The attendees were shocked at the statement without necessarily understanding the context they were set in or the speculative nature of Origen work and they duly condemned Origen and his followers. With the legitimacy gained by the Synod and the outlawing of heresy from Seudicius' edict, Wolfsephilus was able to get the prefect to supply him a portion of troops, and he moved to arrest Isidore and the Toll brothers. But knowing that they are in trouble, they decided to leave Egypt with 300 loyal monks after burning their settlement and books. The goal was to go on international campaign clearing their name of heresy, and in the process, perhaps as an unintended consequence, tarnish that of Pope Zephilus. Now, Pope Zephilus' attack in origin had major consequences, while at the time, it was just his method to get a group of problematic monks in line, it was so effective that in a few episodes, an emperor would order a universal council 
and Origen would be officially condemned by the wider church, was Pope Cephilus's words used to build up the case against him. So we have that to look forward to. It is clear to me so, that if Pope Cephilus did not come into conflict with Isidore and the Toll brothers over matters of policy, he probably would have let the whole issue of origin go. The Toll brothers and Isidore eventually made their way to Constantinople, hoping to appeal to the emperor and use the tension between John Chrysostom and Pope Cephilus in their advantage. John Chrysostom, for his part, proceeded very cautiously. He did not give them an official hospitality, but put them at a hospice attached to a church. He also forbade them to publicly talk about their complaints, and promised to negotiate with Pope Zoophilus on their behalf. He then sent an extremely polite letter to Pope Zoophilus, where he asked him to accept them as a personal favor. Now, had Pope Zoophilus accepted the pleas, and perhaps put some stipulation that reduced their influence, things would have proceeded smoothly and this podcast would have been much less interesting. Alas, tension between Constantinople and Alexandria was a problem. Accepting them back, based on the intervention of Constantinople, in Pope Zephilus' mind, presented a dangerous precedent. The appeal from Jean Carzisto was an unacceptable intervention over an internal matter that was no one else's business. Whatever the case, Pope Zephilus reacted swiftly to the letter, and the issue ceased to be about the Toll Brothers, Isidore, or even Origen. Now it was about John Chrysostom, a newcomer appointed by an unworthy eunuch who thinks he can intervene in the affairs of Alexandria. First, he went about recruiting important allies. Epiphanius, the Bishop of Cyprus, as an anti-origin firebrand was the most natural choice. Pope Zephilus instructed Epiphanius to hold a synod in Cyprus and condemn Origen and his followers as well. Then he sent letters to various bishops asking them to agree to the decisions of the two synods in Nitria and Cyprus. Finally, with the backing of two synods and various bishops, the matter was to be sent to Constantinople for Jean's signature. Now, this was to corner Jean theologically. If he were to sign it, then he has to condemn the Toll Brothers as heretics. If he was to refuse, well, then he is in a pro-origin camp and thus open himself up for accusations of heresy. Jean diplomatically responded that the issue must be decided by a general council before he renders a decision. A wise response, but still, he opened himself up to the accusation of heresy. Pope Zephilus also sent two delegations to the palace in Constantinople to defend his interest. The first were of loyal monks, the second were of experienced lawyers. The Toll brothers began to feel the pressure. They sent a half-measured letter to Pope Zephilus admitting some errors, but generally sticking to supporting origin. Pope Zephilus didn't buy it so, so he kept up the pressure. So then, 
they tried a different tactic. They made a formal petition to Jean Chrysostom, accusing Pope Theophilus of misconduct. John initially tried to get them to drop the charges, and kept trying to solve the issue in a non-confrontational way, but they refused. Thus, John wrote again to Pope Theophilus, this time a bit more assertively and with the list of the charges he was accused of. And that was the breaking point between them. Pope Theophilus responded with a furious letter stating, I think you are not unaware of the ordinance of the Nicene canons forbidding a bishop to educate a case which falls outside of his area. If, however, you are unaware, now that you have been informed, refrain from meddling with accusations brought against me. If it were necessary for me to put on trial, it would be before Egyptian judges, and not before you, who live more than 75 days' journey away. The Toll Brothers, in an act of desperation, made the situation much worse by appealing to the imperial couple directly, bypassing John. As a result of their appeal, Bobsephilus was summoned to stand trial in Constantinople. Now, a trial of the Bishop of Alexandria in Constantinople is probably the worst thing Bobsephilus could have heard. No matter the result, the fact that he's accused publicly of heresy and misconduct in of itself was very damaging. He naturally concluded that John Chrysostom was behind the whole thing in an attempt to subjugate the See of Alexandria to Constantinople. Thus, countermeasures had to be arranged to discredit John and ideally unseat him. The stage was then set for another battle between Constantinople and Alexandria. Would Pope Cephilus succeed in what Peter II failed in doing? Or would the Toll Brothers discredit him and get one of their own to the office? What would happen to Jean Chrysostom? And where is the Emperor in all of that? Interesting questions that will have to wait until next week. Farewell and until then.